3 of chapter 2, where he says, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? He says, basically, if you died with Christ, and he's speaking to this group that is believers, it's a church, and so he's speaking to believers, and he says, it, really, the, the Greek rendering of this word should not be, if you died with Christ. He's, it's implied that he's saying, since you died with Christ. He's telling them something about themselves that they may not know. You know, you ever talk to a new believer? They don't know every little intricate detail about their salvation. They just know that Jesus paid it all, and they're happy about it. And that's good. But we have to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul tells us something that maybe we don't know. He's telling the Colossians this. You guys have been saved, but here's what you need to know. Since you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, since you died with Christ, think about that. Christ died on the cross for our sins. Our sins were nailed to the cross with him and judged there. The payment for those sins was put on the cross, Jesus' blood. So if that is, in fact, the case, then our lives in the world and our sinfulness and our deeds were nailed to the cross in death. We identify with Christ through the death, the burial, and the resurrection. So if Christ died, he was buried, and he rose again, so in like manner we will be dead to ourselves, will be buried, and will be raised from the dead. But that doesn't just include our physical bodies, that includes our sinful nature. See, when we were born, we were born as descendants of Adam. And Adam died on the cross, excuse me, Adam didn't die on the cross. Adam, when he was in the garden, he was our headship. He was our authority. He was God's best. And he represented all of us. And what we inherit from Adam is a sin nature, because sin reigned. He rebelled against God. God gave him one commandment. You know, and it was so much simpler back then. But he said, you can do anything you want in this garden, but you can't eat of that tree. And that's the one thing that Eve did, and then he did it also. He condoned it, and he ate it. And when he did that, he, he took on this sin nature, and he passes that down to every single one of us. And so we've inherited a sin nature from Adam. So he says, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world... Why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? And then he goes on to list some in verse 21. These are the regulations that they were telling them. Verse 21, Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and the doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. They are things that can help you, uh, but they're of no value against your fleshly appetites, is what he says. And in Titus chapter 1, verse 16, Paul's written about this in the same way to um, Titus, who is a leader in this church in uh, a different area. He says, verse 16 of verse one, chapter 1, he says, They profess to know God, but in their works they deny Him. So they have this form of godliness, and yet by their very lives and how they live them out, they deny God. I, I follow God, and that, then if you look at their lives, they don't. And many of us could probably point out people that we know that claim to be followers of Jesus, but do things that are contrary to Jesus and what he taught. 
And so many times we go, well, they must not know Jesus. Well, I think in some cases you could say that. But I think in other cases, it wouldn't be a question of whether or not they know Jesus. It's whether or not they understand that based on what you believe, that's how your behavior will follow. And there was this idea in the Colossian church that it doesn't matter because we're in a, they were in a pagan society. Many of them came out of pagan backgrounds where they would go to an, a physical altar. They would lay down offerings. They, didn't, they would appease the God that they served with offerings. They would lay down food or stuff or money or whatever. They'd leave it at this altar, and then they would go on about their lives and live the same way they always did. But what Jesus came to say was, look, if you're going to follow me, you must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Meaning, meaning that if you're going to call me Lord and say that you, I am your Lord, then your, your actions will follow what you truly believe. So if you follow me, you're going to look different than the world. And so he, he says, don't come to the altar and give an offering and then go live like you always have. Instead, come to me and learn of me and follow me. Do as I do. And I, I think on Father's Day, I need to say this, but the way that I was raised, and I had a very good father, not a godly father, but he taught me a lot of very good things. But one of the things that hurt me the most was when he said, do as I say, not as I do. That, that's hypocritical, right? Because if someone wants you to do something and you don't do it the way that you're asking them to do it, are they likely to follow you? And I would assert that they would not be likely. As a matter of fact, many times it causes them to question whether or not they're going to do what you do at all. And Jesus came along, and he didn't, he didn't ever say that. He came along and he said, look, be holy, for I am holy. That's what God said from the very beginning. Imitate me, Paul wrote later in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Imitate me as I also imitate Jesus Christ. And so God's not calling us to do anything that he's not been willing himself also to do. And so if we look at the life of Jesus, he never asked his disciples to do anything that he wasn't himself willing to do. And so here in Colossae, he, he goes on to say, after saying, these are of no value against the indulgence of flesh. Subjecting yourselves to rules and regulations will not perfect you and make you more holy in the sight of God. And I have an example. I was going to turn to Matthew chapter 15. And we turned there last time and read a couple of verses, but I didn't realize how many parallels there were in this chapter to Colossians. Matthew chapter 15. Remember last time we read this in verse 8 and 9 of Matthew 15. He said, These people draw near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So they're teaching as God's teachings their own traditions and their own works. So when in verse um, 10, he continues, it says, When he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a man. And his disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard you say this? They, the Pharisees were offended because they were the ones he was preaching against. These Pharisees that you look up to as the most holy men in Israel, they draw near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. 
They're worshiping me in vain, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. They were actually, by their own doctrines, by their own commandments of men, pushing people away from the one true and living God and causing them to follow him and them instead, the Pharisees. So when he had called the multitude to himself, he said, Not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. This was unheard of teaching in Jesus' day. Because their rules and regulations were, do not touch, do not taste, do not, you know, all these do nots. And if you do any of these things, you're going to be defiled. But what Jesus says, and he opens up their understanding, God's not interested in your outward actions so much as the heart that those outward actions flow from. Do you get that? Everything in your life that you say and do is flowing out of your heart and what it truly is like. And that scares me because if you ask my wife, she'll be able to tell you that many times things flow out of my mouth and then later I have to apologize or repent. I didn't really mean that. But here's the deal. And here's the convicting thing. I did mean that. That's what was in my heart. Wickedness. Selfishness. And so the question becomes... Does, is God interested in my outward actions? Yes. Or is he interested in my heart? Yes. Both. He's interested in your outward actions, but he doesn't want you to just put on a show. That's what a hypocrite is. It was a Greek word, hypocritos, or something like that, that basically meant that you were wearing a mask. You were covering up what was really there and putting on a show. And that's what these Pharisees were doing. So he says, they draw near to me with their lips, but in vain they worship me, but their heart is far from me. And that's the biggest indicator that we're not right with the Lord. When our hearts are far from him, but we're acting like they are, they're near to him. God wants us to be honest. So <clears throat> they ask him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? And Jesus answered and said, every plant which my heavenly father has not planted will be uprooted. Leave them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. So Peter answered and said to him, explain this parable to us. I love Peter for so many reasons. Number one, anybody can relate with Peter. If you've ever messed up at all, most people are like, Peter, he's my man. That's because he messes up so bad, and he messes up publicly. Um, and most of the time, he owns it. So that's something we need to recognize about Peter. He wasn't a man that never failed. He was a man that never failed to own it. And uh, when he did, Jesus continued to pursue him, and then he would repent, a lot like David. But he says this, explain this parable to us. Verse 16, so Jesus did. And I like that because we just studied in our men's study several weeks ago now. But he said, if you lack wisdom... Ask of the Lord for wisdom, and he will give it to you abundantly, overflowingly, and he will not reproach you for asking. He's a good father. So if you lack wisdom, ask him. And Jesus, here, he doesn't say, Peter, you don't get it? Should have listened last time and walk away. No, what he said was, are you still without understanding? He was kind of marveling that Peter still didn't get it, but then he does go on to explain he says, do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into, lost my spot, goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. 
These are the things which defile a man, <clears throat> but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. So they were all interested in what they were taking into their bodies. Imagine this. It was a culture where people spent way more time thinking about what they eat than what they say. Can we relate with that? I mean, how many times have you seen, oh, we got to get rid of ox, uh, oxidizers or whatever. No, oxidizers, that's a really bad thing. It's like poison. What was it? A few years back, it was, uh, it was some sort of level. Of, now it's gluten. It was before gluten, and now it's gluten. But my point is, is that we spend, even as Christians, more time thinking about what we put into our bodies because we want to take care of our bodies, and we should. God's given us these bodies until he's done with them. But my point is, is that we spend way more time thinking about our physical health than we do about our spiritual health. And Jesus is pointing this out to these Pharisees, and he's pointing it out for us. So <clears throat> they have an appearance of godliness, and yet they deny the power of God. So in chapter 3, verse 1, Jesus, or Paul continues here. He says, If then you were raised with Christ... Now again, he's just said in verse 20, if you died with Christ, now he's saying, if you were raised with Christ. The idea being, since you died with Christ, and now as believers, since you've been raised with Christ, you have a new kingdom. You're, you have dual citizenship. Do you know that? We are citizens of an earthly kingdom, whether we want to be or not, whether we like the leader or not. We are a part of an earthly kingdom. It's the United States of America. We have leaders elected leaders, but here's the deal. We also are a part, as Christians, of a heavenly kingdom. So he says, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. And then he says, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So he wants us to have a mindset that is not so much on the things of this earth as we make it. We're going to have a tendency to think about what we can see, taste, touch, smell a lot more than we do the things of God, the kingdom of God. So he says, seek the things that are above where Christ is. My question for you would be, what are those things? Then he says, set your mind on heavenly things, not on earthly things. Okay, so what, what's the difference? What's heavenly, what's earthly? Okay, and then he says, stay focused on Jesus. Where you are promised to be, he is our final destination and reward. We think about heaven, we think about this destination. I don't know what it's going to be like exactly. I know that there's descriptions in Scripture. I think Jesus actually spent more time explaining what hell would be like than he did what heaven would be like. He talked about, in heaven, the earthly mansions and the place that Jesus has been building for us. And, and he also talks about the fact that he's going to be there. But we don't get tons of information that paint a specific picture. That's why it always makes me nervous when, when people come out with books describing heaven, because they seem to have more of a description coming from their lips than Jesus did. That scares me. That makes a little red flag for me. But here he says... Seek the things that are above where Christ is. Set your mind on heavenly things and stay focused on Jesus. So 
I, I looked up a couple of scriptures because I was pondering this. I'm like, okay, set your mind on things that are above where Christ is and set your mind on heavenly things, not on earthly things. So what are those? Well, obviously, my, my first thought was to go to Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, because Jesus spoke very specifically about what we have a tendency to do versus what we should do. He tells them not to worry. He says, I, verse 25 of Matthew 6, He says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? I think that we would, if we read this verse just and pondered about it for a whole day and really examined what we spend most of our time thinking about, I think it would be convicting because I think we spend, and I'm including myself in this, more time thinking about what we eat, uh, what we put on, uh, and our food, and, uh, and what we drink. All the stuff that we do, we're kind of consumed with it all day, and it causes us not to think about the things that we need to think about more. Verse 26, he says, Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these flowers. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So then he says, Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all of these things the Gentiles sink, seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So I guess the point I'm making is that he says, seek things that are above, set your mind on heavenly things. And he says, if you will do this, your heavenly father knows the things that you need. He will provide for you clothes. He will provide for you food. Notice there it doesn't say anything about a house. In our day and age, that's a big need that we see as a need. But what God says in his word here is that, you know, think about it. Jesus never had a place to lay his head. He didn't have anywhere that he lived. And yet he always had a place to stay. And so if we will follow his example, doesn't mean that we shouldn't save money. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't take care of ourselves by eating right. It doesn't say that we shouldn't get a job and try to make sure we have the means to take care of our children. All it says is that we don't need to spend the bulk of our time worrying about these things as if that helps. Instead, what we ought to be concerned with is the condition of our heart before the God that we will be judged by. So back in Colossians, where he says this, he, he gives us some very specific things. And, and I, I like this because, sorry, my mind's kind of scattered this morning. <clears throat> 
in Matthew chapter 24, you don't have to turn there. I was just going to read this verse real quick. He says this, verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And so, you know, if you want to seek the things that are above where Christ is seated, I think a place to start would be God's word. That being said, Colossians chapter 3 again, in verse 5, he's, he says, when, after in verse 4 where he said, where Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, he says, put to death your members which are on the earth. He says, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. He talks about sin. He says, put to death your members. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Notice the phraseology. He uses past tense. He says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon those who are still disobedient to God, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. I like how he always gives perspective. He, he says, you know, beware of these things, put them to death, because God's judgment's coming upon them as you were once going to be a partaker of. But now that you are in Christ, he says, we still need to put to death these members. And I like this because um, he speaks about this in Matthew chapter 5. And I love this passage because... <laughs> He, he talks not so much about the outward actions, but the intentions of the heart. There, if you'll remember, he says, You have heard it said of those of old, you shall not murder. Speaking of one of the Ten Commandments. And the Word of God says that, right? He says, And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. There was a specific judgment on those who murdered. But then he says, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, the word means you fool, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go, to, go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So he tells them how to deal with it. You know, he just says, it's not just about committing murder, but don't you realize that hatred in your heart is where murder starts? It starts with a thought that leads to an action. Then he says in verse 25, he says, Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver to you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Verse 27, moving ahead, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. And they had that in the law specifically. He says, But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so once again, he says, These thoughts are really what God's concerned with. Because if the thoughts are put to death, you take every thought captive in Christ and you get rid of it, Here's the deal. You don't have to worry about committing the action, the sin. He says, start at the source, not at the outward action. So, he says, put to death your members within you. And um, in verse, let's see, 
Now, we're not going there yet. So back in Colossians in verse 7, he goes on. He says, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them, but now. And I love that phrase in this particular passage. He says, but now. He's reconciling to them. Look, you need to remember that you once walked in these things. And if you still are, then quit. He says, but now you yourselves, and he gives them their position. Remember he said just a little bit ago, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. He says, if you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is. Set your mind on where Christ is. And if you recognize where you are seated with Christ, it will probably change the way you think about the rest of your life. He says, now you yourselves are to put off all of these. And he talks about social sins. So we talked about before in verse 5, we talked about sensual sins. And, and now we're going to talk about social sins. He says, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. He says, do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So I like this because he says, put off these things. But I want to contrast those two lists, verse 5 and verse 8. Many times if we looked at verse 5, we would say, well, obviously a Christian doesn't need to be doing these things. He talks about fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Did you know that covetousness is like the 10th of the Ten Commandments, the do-nots? But it's interesting, if you are coveting, which is idolatry, coveting will make you like something or desire something more than you desire to please God. And so in coveting, coveting will actually cause you to break any of the other commandments. Paul was a coveter. He said, I had the whole law covered. I was living by it. But then he said, I realized that I had a problem with coveting. I wanted the position in the Sanhedrin. I wanted to be known as a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He said, but in order to do that, what I had to do was zealous, be zealous for the law. And what he ended up doing in his covetousness is that he wanted prominence, and he ended up going out and seeking and hunting down Christians and killing them, having them put to death. It was murder. And so covetousness is a lot bigger of a one than we might think. But what he says, what, what verse 8 says is a, a list of sins that most Christians would say, well, obviously, uh, we shouldn't be doing that as believers. But look at verse 8. Put off all of these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Uh, many of us give each other passes for anger, outbursts of anger. You know, if we were in some sort of meeting and we just through a fit all of a sudden, many of us would say, well, that's righteous indignation. That's not anger. But anger is, is something that we need to be putting off, he says. He says, do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Now, in verse 11, I had a thought the other night. He's talking about putting off these, these attitudes, but then he says, put on 
the new man. Since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man. He's talking like a garment. We take off a garment so we can put on another one. But I think it's interesting because the idea about the church many times kind of gets blurred. We think of different denominations. We think of different uh, ideas about God. But what God is doing in the church is he's building a new man. Uh, we, as individuals, are to put on the new man. We're supposed to put on Christ. But we also need to think about it as the church corporately. We are to put on the new man. When you and I find out exactly how God's made us in his kingdom, what he's gifted us to do for the body of Christ, and we do it, and we continue to grow in our sanctification, meaning that he continually cleanses us and transforms us by the renewing of our minds, he's building a new man. And that man is, in fact, the body of Christ, with Christ as the head. But I think about it like this. He says, in this body, verse 11, there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. And the thought that I had the other night was actually about how Christ is reuniting what at first sin had separated. And the only thing that I could think of to describe this was found at the Tower of Babel. If you remember with me, Noah was the only righteous man that God found in that day that would listen to the voice of God. So God told him, I want you to build a boat. It's going to rain. I'm going to cleanse the earth of all sinfulness. So as he did that, he flooded the whole earth. Noah spent a hundred years building a boat, by the way. Wow. So then the boat is up. His whole family is saved by it. He takes the animals on there and ends up being a picture of Christ being the ark that delivers us from the wrath of God, that wrath being the rain. But as we see this, I want you to think about this. Afterwards, I think it's Genesis 11, we see this instance where God has placed all these people back on earth, and they decide, you know what, we're all going to work together, and we're going to build a place of worship. And this place of worship is going to be a tower. It's going to go all the way to heaven. And when it gets to heaven, we will, nothing will stop us from getting there on our own. So they're basically building themselves up to be able to get to heaven on their own in this tower. Well, how do I know that they were trying to get to heaven on their own? Well, because not only did they build a building, but they took tar and pitch and covered the outside of the building so that even if it did flood, their building would survive the flood. So it's kind of a, an instance of pride against God. And so God looked down on these people. He saw that they were doing it. And he said, man, this is not a good thing. There is nothing they won't be able to do while they're all working together. So he took all of the people that were working on this and he, he spread them out. And he spread them out in every different direction and he confused their tongues. He made it so they couldn't understand one another anymore. And so the point I'm making with this is... At that point, when God separated them, there was Jew and Greek, circumcised, uncircumcised. There was slave and free, and nobody worked together. But in the body of Christ, these things are not to be that way. So when he talks about this, he says, In this new man that God is making, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, there is neither Greek nor Jew circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. 
therefore. And I like therefore phrases because we want to look up at the verses before it. He's, he's basically leading into this conclusion he's drawing. He says, as the elect of God, the chosen people of God, holy and beloved. <clears throat> he says, as you're putting on the new man, he says, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. And then he points them to Christ. He says, if anyone has a complaint against another, then even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, he says, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. So he says the antidote, essentially for the fleshly life, is a heavenly life. A life that's lived to please the ruler of heaven, but also a life that's, hev- a life that's had that actually lives out what heaven is like on earth. <clears throat> so he says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Let God himself rule your hearts. And I like what Psalm 51 actually says. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And so to these Colossian believers, he says, here's the deal. You're trying to sanctify yourselves by what you can do, by what you can live out. And what God wants to do is he wants to, instead of changing your outward actions, he wants to transform your heart and make it completely new. And if you will let him do that, if you'll let him rule over your heart, then guess what's going to pour out of it? A fountain of life. And, and I say that because the fountain of our, our hearts pours out through our mouth, like we read earlier. And so if the fountain of our heart is pouring out the signs of the old man, then I would have you question whether or not you've put on the new man. If you've only taken off all the bad deeds you've done in life, then you're not, you're not genuinely born again. But if you have put off the old man and are putting on the new, the idea isn't like to put it on one time, but to continually put on the new man, then guess what's going to happen? He's going to change your heart, and out of that heart is going to flow rivers of living water. Rivers. Not just a little trickle, not just a little drip, but a river of living water. And as I read this verse... He says, uh, let the word of Christ, verse 16, dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. He says, not only will your life be changed, not only what comes out of your mouth will it be changed, Not only will the deeds that you do with your life be changed, but guess what? Others will be changed as well. He says, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. See, when we come to church on Sunday, it's not about the sermon. It's not just about worship. But it's also about us pouring our lives into one another. And that can happen throughout the week. Many times I'll get a text message or a phone call from someone. And it will be because God has changed their heart 
and given them a word or encouraged them in some way that they'll want to share it with me or with others. And when we do that, we're building one another up. We're transforming each other's lives by our own presence there. <clears throat> so we'll become a wellspring as well. One more, uh, one more reference in Exodus chapter 15. You may not, or you may remember this story. So um, Moses has delivered the people of Israel out of Egypt. And as he's delivered them out of Egypt, um, they come to the Red Sea. And when they come to the Red Sea, they have to, by faith, trust the Lord. Moses lifts up his staff, and all night the wind blows, and the Red Sea is parted. And then they cross through on dry land, and the Egyptians are plundered. The water is let go on them. And then when he crosses, they get to the other side, and there's always another trial. You know, there's always another time or an opportunity to trust the Lord. You don't get to stop at the Red Sea crossing and go, I did it. It, our life of faith is that. It's a walk by faith. And every next step has to be done by faith. But as they get there, and as they transfer through this wilderness, this wilderness is not just a wilderness. But after going there, I found out that it's not just, I was thinking wilderness, I'm thinking about the hill up here, covered in trees and creeks and lots of rain. But it's a desert. And as they're in the desert, they're, they're been brought there by the Lord, and they get to a spot where it's been a few days and they haven't anything to drink. I don't know about you guys, but I can't go down the road once or twice, you know, and I need something to drink. I get thirsty so easily. So it's been a few days since they've had a drink of water. All their canteens are empty. And verse 22, it says, So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Then they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now when they came to Marah... They could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What are we going to drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. And he cast the tree into the waters, and the waters were made sweet. So, I like this because here they are. They've been baptized into this new faith of trusting the Lord in this wilderness place. They're walking, they get thirsty, and they try to draw from waters that they can find. And I would say, and this is just a devotional thought, in many ways I look at this passage and I see that in order to continue to live in the land that God's brought them to, they're trying to draw from the water that they can find on their own. They're trying to draw from what, they're trying to draw from in, within themselves, you know, if that makes sense. If you've watched enough Disney movies, you know what I'm talking about. You can do anything you want as long as you try hard enough and you believe in yourself. But I, I'm going to say that many times I, I get what they're saying, but they're, it's really a lie. We cannot perfect ourselves in this life of faith with the Lord on our own merit. We can't do it uh, by drawing from creeks that we find on our own. That creek, that place of, that source of life has to be transformed. And so I like what it says here where Moses cries to the Lord and he says, he made a statue and an ordinance for them and he tested them and said, if you diligently heed the voice of the Lord, your God, and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you, which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. I am the Lord who heals you. 
We hear the word heal, and we think of physical illness. And God can, in fact, heal our physical illness. He can heal uh, problems that we've had. He can um, heal relationships. But I think many times what he really wants to do is heal the source from where our water comes from. And, and in this case, it says there, He cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. And when he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. And I truly believe that that tree, in fact, was Christ. That when that water was healed and made to be a source of life, because in the desert, if you don't have water, you don't have life. They had no water, they had no life. God, we need water. Here's water. God, this water's bitter. It's gonna, it could kill us. So he purified it by having Moses touch it with this tree. Now, was it something about the tree? I, I don't know. It could be some sort of desert, you know, survival method for all I know. But all I know is that the, the word of the Lord and the provision of the Lord is what healed that water and gave them life. So let me tell you what you need to be careful about and what you need to really put on is finding that the word of the Lord and the provision of the Lord is what's going to give you life. And it's all had in Jesus Christ. He is the word of the Lord, and he is the provision for our sins. Trusting in anything else will not deliver you from the wrath of God. And it won't deliver you from the consequences of continued sin, even as believers. So what God wants you to do is hear his word, trust in his providence, trust in him providing, and that's where that water of life will come from. So let's pray. Father, <clears throat> I thank you for this opportunity to study your word. I thank you for the book of Colossians where Paul, much like a father who had never met this, these people, knew that they had faith in Christ and wanted to bring them on past the training wheel phase. He wanted to take them to a place where they were off the training wheels and on the pure milk of the word. And so, Father God, I pray that we as a church and those that we come into contact with would be encouraged to, to grow and to mature in their relationship with you. May we be healed by you. May the things of our past, the things, the, the habits, the, the sin habits that have formed in our lives, the, the conversations, the attitudes towards those we work with and those in our own household, those that are in our families, Lord, may they be transformed as we put off the old man and his deeds and we put on the new man, that new man being Jesus. Lord, help us to wear you like a garment and to recognize that you're, you're covering us each day and that you want to transform and change the attitudes and the habits that we have. Lord, um, we are no longer subject to sin and to the slavery and the bondage and the power of sin because of all that Jesus did on the cross. And so, I pray, Lord, that you would have victory in our lives today as we take these things in and as we chew on them and as we try to understand how to live this life of faith. Lord, help us to continually go back to you as the source. In Jesus' name, amen.